Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Today's episode is sponsored by Estet. Estet Managed Services lowers clients' e-discovery spend, improving security and control over data. Estet makes your practice more powerful and profitable. See more at e-stet.com. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest has extensive experience advising private equity, venture capital, hedge funds, family offices, and alternative asset managers and their portfolio companies in a variety of transactions and strategic matters. In addition to his work with clients, he sits on his firm's executive committee and leads the private equity and mergers and acquisitions business. A noted rainmaker, we are pleased to welcome Goodwin Senior Partner Ilan Nissan to Left Foot. Thanks for having me, Nicole. Great to have you here, Ilan. Great to be here. Ilan, which of your personal strengths or habits have allowed you to be successful in developing your business? If I look at it across all the different clients, the one personality trait I think that's most important is to seem the least like a lawyer. What I mean by that is clients gravitate towards people the most like them. So if you can think about who you're talking to at the client and package the advice in a way that they can best consume it, you'll have the most success getting and retaining those clients. So let me give you a couple of examples. In many situations, clients can be lawyers at the organization that you're representing. And your interaction will be primarily with lawyers who understand legal jargon, whose job it is is to take the advice that you've given to him or her and report to their direct report or senior person, and to take that advice that you've given to them and to package it in a way that makes the most sense for their organization. So the interface between you and that person can be more lawyerly. Jargon can be legalese. The discussion can be of a legal nature. And the presentation can be from one lawyer to the next, which tends to make it very different dynamic than if your client is someone without legal training and who is not a lawyer. So if your client is an individual who's a, quote, business person at the organization and doesn't have a a law degree or isn't practicing as a lawyer, my experience tells me that they tend to not be (laughs) interested in the nuts and bolts of the legal analysis as much as the results and the alternatives that you would suggest. So you've got to adjust the way you give the advice to that person in a way that he or she can use it best. And clients of that nature tend not to be as enamored with legal jargon, discussion of a highly technical nature. They're more interested in getting to possible alternatives that you would suggest to them and and oftentimes want you to kind of prod them in that direction. I find that's pretty important. The other thing I would point out is, again, you have to think about the organization that you're representing, because there's a a huge amount of specialization these days. A lot of lawyers tend to see the same types of transactions and the same types of issues over and over again. But if they have different clients, I think they wrongly assume that the same issues would be of equal importance to each of the clients, when in fact they're not. Different organizations have different levels of risk tolerance, have different cultures, have different styles, have different viewpoints about how information should be delivered to the organization and then moved around and and repackaged, if you will, within the organization. Quite candidly, just a lot of organizations just have different levels of appetite for risk, and that's a function of just their culture. It's a function of what experiences that organization has had as a whole and good or bad experiences. So one mistake I find that 
lawyers often make is to assume, because they go through their litany of, you know, their 20 top issues in every transaction, that assume that each of those issues is of equal weight or relevant to each of their clients. And it's just not necessarily true. And the more you can customize and package the advice in a way that, again, is most relevant and usable to the client based upon knowing your client and knowing what uniquely they focus on either culturally or regulatorily, that's actually very helpful. And it actually even goes down, I think, to the to the point of the delivery of the advice. Do they want to hear it orally? Do they want to hear it in writing? Do they want a formal memo? Are the people that are going to be reviewing the advice going to be looking at it on a mobile device? And, and can you package the advice in a way that they can most easily read it and respond to it in a way that allows for an interactive discussion online because they like to discuss the advice online as opposed to live. You think about all those issues and think about an approach for each client that's different than the other, I think you'll be able to more easily obtain and retain clients because at the end of the day, this is a service business and many of these clients tend to be sophisticated consumers of legal services. They have many choices and they have many experiences with many law firms. They tend to gravitate to the ones that are the easiest to use for them and and, and that understand them the most. Great points there. We have definitely heard those themes. I'll ask a follow-up question about two of the three. Coming into a meeting as a business professional, even though you are a lawyer, and bringing in your business knowledge and your knowledge of the client's particular business can definitely be an asset. Is is that a correct statement for what you said in the first point? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's important. I think it's actually very important because the clients really want to understand or want to know that you're focused on their unique problems and are focusing on them uniquely as opposed to taking standard advice and apply it to them. So do you suggest, we've had this debate with a lot of different guests, there's this idea that do lawyers need to have an MBA, formal business education on top of their law firm education, like a patent attorney who would have both a law degree and, and a chemical degree. Is that something you would recommend or do you think most strong lawyers can get that experience while they're doing the good work that they're going to do in a firm? They'll learn about a particular industry. What's your recommendation, say, to someone who asks your, your advice? On many levels, there's, there's a way to approach this. So I think on a preliminary basis, I think if you're going to be a corporate lawyer, you have to have a strong business background. So I think if you've majored in business or economics or accounting or some subset of business, I think you're probably in good stead. If you haven't, I think you need to do some homework and get up to speed because at the end of the day, you're going to be negotiating, drafting, dispensing advice with regard to business concepts that are oftentimes very complex. So I think that's kind of basal metabolism 101. You've got to learn that stuff and know it well, just from a raw knowledge perspective. Courses out there that teach business for lawyers, accounting for lawyers, finance for lawyers. Maybe 10 or 15 years ago, those courses didn't exist so much, but I think given the increased focus on turning out corporate lawyers that are able to plug and play to the same extent that law schools have been able to do that with litigators. I think there's an increased focus on that. So a lot of law schools focus on and teach courses that are for more practical nature for lawyers because that's kind of a difficult thing to get up the curve on if you, if you don't know the, the lexicon at the outset. But I, I don't think it's enough. Whether it helps to get an MBA, yeah, of course it puts you ahead of everyone else if you've got an MBA and you're competing against somebody who doesn't. But I don't think it's necessary. I, I think if you apply yourself and you've got some basic finance and basic business background, I think you're able to pick it up sufficiently to be as effective as necessary. But after you've gotten a good education on those basic concepts, I think one of the most important things to do is to study the client. And I think that's where many people fall on their face. Studying the client in terms of their industry, in terms of precisely what they do and how they do it, I think is very important. Learning the industry, learning who their competitors are, I think is very important. In my 
business, a lot of my clients tend to be people who don't have a particular industry expertise. They're in the business of making investments in other businesses. When they're making an investment in business X, I think it's very important for me to learn a lot about business X and the industry in which business X operates and its competitors if I don't already know it. I think that makes you a much more effective lawyer because it makes you focus on what's important and not focus on what's not important. And clients really care about that. I also think it's very important to understand the person that you're working with at the client and understand what she or he is focused on and get a good understanding at the outset of the transaction by asking questions like, what's the big risk here that you guys have identified so far? What are you very focused on? What are you not focused on? What are you concerned about? What are you not concerned about? And lastly, I think it's important to understand how your individual contact that the client fits into the broad organization and how he or she will be utilizing the advice you provide to him or her. Again, what his or her risk tolerance is and will he or she be making the decision based on advice you've given him or her or will they be passing it on to somebody else who will not necessarily understand the discussions that the two of you or the three of you have had so that you need to think about how your advice ends up getting passed down the line. For example, if you end up working with a lawyer as your client, any advice you provide him or her could ultimately just be forwarded to a senior person who's not a lawyer, in, in which case you thought about it in a way that could be utilized by that person in addition to the person that you're interacting with on a daily basis. Now, those are great points, being curious about their business, being curious about their industry. Elon, I think about the access to information we have today. And when I started my career, that was not the case. It was a little different. Now, today, we have so much information. So there is a responsibility of not only doing the legal work or the professional services work, but having some knowledge of who you're talking to, what their business is prior to a discussion, and then, of course, confirming it. Those last points you just stated about their risk and what are they going to do with the information and what is the intent of advice or, or the matter? Those are things you have to get through conversation. I would assume those would be front and center to a lawyer and attorney going out to really discuss a matter at the onset, I would hope. It's interesting how these things evolve because whenever a new client hires us and let's say it's an organization with many people, I always tell them that we're going to be dating in the beginning and the dating could take a year or two. And what I mean by dating is, is that there are going to be people at my organization, my law firm, that interact with people at their organization. And if we're doing our job right, it'll be many people across many different areas. But the organizations truly won't be able to know each other and know how each other work until we've gone through a few things together. And I think it's very important. And I tell them this all the time. We're going to ask you a lot of questions in the first few months, and some of them may be repetitive, but it's going to take some time for us as an organization to know you as an organization and to know how you think about risk, how you think about consuming legal services, how your organization works, both formally and informally, and how decisions get made and how information gets distributed and disseminated. And we don't really know that at the outset. So it's difficult for us to do it efficiently in the beginning because we're learning. With any luck, and, and if we're doing our job right after a while, our law firm as an organization become more efficient and become more effective at representing that organization because we learn that organization and we've learned it through spending a lot of time with them, but also experiencing a lot of transactions with them where we see how they act and we see how they react in different situations. And then at some point, we've got our X number of clients and along the continuum, we, we don't explicitly do this, but implicitly, we know where each sit along the continuum of, of risk and the way they like to get their legal advice dispensed to them. It goes back to the point I made earlier. If we can, as much as possible, customize the way we give our advice to each of the clients based upon their business and, and the way their organization works, 
then I think we're doing a good job. Good points. And it's interesting, the book, The Speed of Trust, talks about that. It's There's all these initial steps. That first step is, is this person a person I want to do business with? Is this person someone who's credible? Is this person and the firm that that person represents, is that an organization that I can feel comfortable entering a business relationship with? Once I get through that step, and that's really, quote unquote, that beginning of the dating process, then you want to try it out, right? So that's when you'd get one piece of business. You're still not at a trusting relationship, but you're basically at that, hey, we're going to go on some dates and we're going to get to that point where I'm going to feel comfortable giving them one piece of business. When you get to the trust phase, it's not even a question. They're going to come to you because you are, they have a trusting relationship. Frankly, we we do use that example a lot in, in our teachings because most people can relate to it. Let's move on to strategy. So one of the things that we talk about on our program is having some predictability to the business we're going to bring in each year. Of course, when you're running a business, running a practice, you have to, I'm sure, project the business that will come into the practice in the coming year, in the coming quarter, et cetera, to make sure you're meeting financial targets. And of course, one of the things about professional services is you may have agreements with clients, but doesn't mean they're going to bill a certain amount of work in a given year that has to be projected based on occurrences that are going to happen at those clients. We're planning to invest in three new companies, we're starting a new fund, whatever those items are. Elon, is there a particular strategy that you employ for your planning for the year for your business, for your practice? And if you could share that, and then also do you go back and look at it regularly so that you know you're on target? To be honest, this is a very funny business in that regard. It's very difficult to plan and it's very difficult to get it just right. From a business perspective, this business basically has two costs. It has real estate and people. Those are our primary costs. And you try and manage the two as much as you can to maximize profitability. So of course, you don't want too much real estate or too much expensive real estate. So you try as much as possible to match that from a global perspective for a large organization. And you obviously also try and match as much as possible the amount of legal talent you have based upon your expected needs. That's difficult to do, but we try and do it in a couple of ways. One is from a macro perspective, we do sit down and try and budget how many people we're going to need. And it's real rough justice guesstimating, but we we try and come up with the right number. But the problem with this business is if we need more people, it's not like we can go down on the corner and hire them. We've got to have people here at the organization that are well integrated, that we trust to do the work that we have experience working with because we're trusting them with our most important assets, which is our client relationships. My view, and it's shared by the rest of the team here is, is that we always err on the side of having too many rather than too few. And I think the reason for that is is because you always need to have the store open, if you will. My view is, is if the store is open and you've got good talent, clients will come and clients will come back if business is slow and, and starts to pick up. The problem with trying to manage it too finely is, is you're never going to get it right. You always want to be able to have a strong enough bench to accommodate business that you're going to get. If you've had success in the past, and luckily we have, we're lucky enough to, I think, be reasonably confident that if business is slow at any given point in time, it's never completely frenetic. When business does pick up, clients are going to call us more than others or call us sufficiently to justify our expenses. Whether we go back and look at it, honestly, I think we say we do, but I don't think we really do. I think we look at every year from a profitability perspective and make judgments as to what we could have done better or what we had done well enough. But I don't think we manage it from a practice by practice basis. It's difficult to do. And now a word from our episode sponsor. For 10 years, Eastet has helped clients save money by streamlining e-discovery and document review processes. 
see why AM100 firms, Fortune 500 companies, and boutique firms love Eastet's simple pricing and customer service-centered approach on matters from IP to class actions to internal investigations. See more at e-stet.com. The market's changed. I would assume you agree since, you know, 2008, the market for professional services has changed. There's been more pressures. There's been the need to spend money on technology, which hopefully helped to make the work that you're doing and, and your firm's doing more efficient. How have things changed in at least the planning or even the execution as far as really monitoring how many people you have, what kind of matters are profitable for the firm at this point, and what have you seen that you'd want to share with our listeners that, frankly, has changed the way you go out and, and look for business? From a macro perspective, there's just been a reduction in overall legal spend since 2008, 2009, particularly in the corporate area. This has been less activity. And I think, having not looked at the figures, but I'm pretty confident the number of lawyers has roughly stayed the same. Although the number going to law school has plummeted, particularly in the middle tier and the lower tier law schools. But having said that, we still have a large number of lawyers. And I think that's the product of typically the number of people who would have left the law firms at senior points in their careers, I think, are staying a little bit longer just because the legal jobs in the non-lawyer realm have probably have been reduced. So I think you're just seeing the same number or slightly fewer lawyers than you did nine or 10 years ago. What does that mean? I don't think technology really has moved the needle much on making us more efficient. We sell our thoughts, we sell our words, we sell our ideas, uh, we sell our strategy. Ultimately, we're really consultants. It's difficult to replace that or shorten that with technology. At the margins, I think you can do it by outsourcing cost centers and so forth, but there's a limit to all that. I think the way it's changed, at least my practice of law is, is that there's a lot more focus on relationships. What I mean by relationships is I mean individual relationships, not not institutional. There are many law firms out there where there's an institutional relationship between the law firm and the client. But I think there's probably been a reduction in that for a variety of reasons. And as a result, it's put much more focus on the relationship between the human beings themselves. The relationships between the client relationship partner at the law firm and the person making the legal decisions of the client. That's a relationship that has to be focused on a lot more than it might have been 10 years ago. Client business to a great extent is one not in the context of formal pitches, but in the context of the evolution of relationships outside of the context of those formal sit-down pitches. I will tell you my experience with formal sit-down pitches when you get an RFP and you get a phone call and you're asked to you know, provide a lot of data about the law firm and have a meeting where the law firm brings seven or eight nine, 10 people and the client does the same, my hit rate or success rate in that context is virtually zero. Personally, from my perspective, I I haven't found that to be a particularly effective strategy, particularly after the the 2008 crisis. You work on a matter with a particular buyer, right? And that in your case would be, you know, a particular private equity firm. You're working with them or you're working with a legal professional in another area and they experience good work, the good work that you're doing and your team is doing. And it's that relationship that leads to wherever they go to next or someone asks them for a referral or what we've heard a lot on left foot recently is that the person on the other side of a particular business deal where they weren't represented by our guest on left foot, that person ends up being their next client because they're watching them do that work. It isn't those formal pitches and the time and money spent on those should definitely be examined at this point. Look, I think it's a people business. It's a consultant business. We sell our thoughts and our ideas. So people want to 
touch a person and they want attention from the senior people in the organization and they want to work with somebody that can make the organization jump for them. They, they realize that every firm has some strengths and may not be as strong in, in other areas and they appreciate the honesty, but just as importantly, they want to affiliate with someone who has the gravitas in the organization to be able to have the organization's best people focus on their problems quickly and, and effectively, care about establishing a relationship with somebody who they trust. And you're right, oftentimes people are involved in a negotiation, they see another lawyer and they may like that lawyer better than theirs. A number of people are on the same side of a transaction and they're each separately represented and one among the crowd they may like or may respect or may think suits their organization better than their current lawyer. I also find that sources of business tend to be the fact that if you make a point to have a relationship not just with the person who's your contemporary or has the correlative job with you at the client, but even more senior people or in many cases, more junior people, I tend to find that that's a very effective way of propagating business just because, again, increasingly we're seeing people move around, particularly young people. And if you establish a relationship with somebody, he or she may not necessarily be the person that makes the legal decision at the client. If he or she gets up and goes somewhere else, oftentimes there's an opportunity to continue the relationship with that person when they go somewhere else. I think it's very important to have multiple relationships with the client because the individuals that are fostering that relationship with the client often go somewhere else and that can lead to more business than you initially had with the client. There's a concept called laddering, which is on every client team, making sure that you have someone that from experience and from tenure aligns with the team at the client. Is that something that you've heard about or practice where you would say, okay, the client has a seasoned executive, a mid-career executive, and two analysts that we're involved with? Have you ever thought or maybe subconsciously that you wanted to create a team that had a similar makeup? Not subconsciously, consciously. Yes, that's exactly what I do. Well, for a number of reasons. One is a lot of times it's odd how the delivery advice works because the most junior person on the client team may be candidly shy to call me up and ask me a question for fear that I may call up his or her boss and say, what a dumb question. But they've got no problem calling somebody up who's their contemporary and trying to get an answer from them. And even if that answer ultimately comes from me and the conduit is through a junior person at my organization to theirs, it's all about delivering the advice in the way that the client can utilize it. And if we can make that junior person look good in front of their superior, we've all bought a friend. But the concept of laddering is not strictly the person who has the same or similar job at the organization or interacting solely with the person on the other side. As the senior person at the law firm, I think it's incumbent for you to develop relationships with all the people, not just the most senior. My point from before, the junior people may leave. In fact, many times they will. And you want to maintain a relationship with them as well to the extent that you possibly can if, if they go somewhere else. Because again, it, it can lead to more work. It's interesting business. It's interesting in the sense that it's, it's just such a relationship-based business that you really have to maintain focus on those issues. And, and there is something I want to talk about as well, which is I think it's very important to have a diverse group of people at the law firm, particularly people of color, women, LGBT, individual lawyers, just because I think that opens you up to a client that you don't necessarily have access to if you're just simply staffing it with a bunch of white males. We're definitely hearing that. We're hearing that more from the client side as we interview general counsel. They're saying we expect a diverse team and we are looking for and we're even selecting teams that are diverse. To your point earlier that you're selling your thoughts, your interpretation, your words, those words may be different or may be influenced by a more diverse team. Yeah. And candidly, if they want to see people 
like themselves. It's only human nature to want to see that, to see some of it so it makes you feel more comfortable. And if it's consistently a group of white men, it's just not the right way to go from my perspective. We try as much as possible to do that. And I think that actually adds value to the client development and client retention process as well. How about a success story? Is there a client or a situation within a client where you were either surprised that you were awarded the business or where the relationship possibly started in a place that was surprising? I will tell you this. I find that you never know where your next big client is going to come from. Oftentimes, people call me up based on referrals to do things. We can do them perfectly well, and we can handle them better than most law firms, but they're not the sweet spot necessarily of what we do. We're built to work on larger transactions. If people are looking for help with employment issues or small litigation, and and we get a referral, I take it all. Even if I end up not charging for it, can never have too many relationships. And I will tell you, some of the biggest clients I've gotten are from places I would have never have expected to get them just because I didn't say no to somebody who had a friend who needed help and I spent 10 or 15 hours helping somebody not expecting to get paid. But thereafter, the person being so grateful that I've gotten large relationships and business as a result of that, that's actually been very satisfying. And that's happened on a number of occasions, actually. So the advice I would give is to not be myopic and only look for a certain type of transaction, but to be over-inclusive. And if there's something you can do or if if there's something that you can get the organization that you work at to do, by all means, try and take it if you can, because you never know where that next large relationship is going to come from. I've seen many situations in which very small matters just inspired confidence in the person that was hiring you, and it turned into something very, very substantial. Great advice. They're witnessing something, they're confident in how you executed, and then it can lead to that next situation. Two quick questions. Any advice that you would give, specific advice to a partner, new partner, someone just starting off in their business development, something that tomorrow morning they could go ahead and start executing on? Do an inventory of every single person you know, both through work and otherwise, and categorize them in terms of what they do, whether there's a possibility of obtaining business from them. And I would start, if you haven't already, becoming social with them and start engaging that person and those people as much as possible. Make time in your schedule to do that because it's very easy to just sit behind the desk all the time and just do the work. But if you just do the work and you don't get out there and meet people and interact with people, you're still going to be doing the work in 20 or 30 years. Your goal is always to do the work because you only have two assets, your knowledge and and your relationships. So you don't want to just have relationships without knowledge. I think it's very important to continue to do the work, but you don't start establishing and building relationships. You You don't really have the second piece of the asset. I think you've got to get out there and interact with people and start trying to build the business little by little. Elon, before we end our time, what do you enjoy most about the work that you do? I love getting business. That's my favorite thing. I like going out, meeting people, and obtaining business. And I like interacting with people. I think it's the fun part of this business. This business is hard. It's very demanding. It's very time-consuming. It can be very pressurized. Part I like the most is going out, meeting people, interacting with them, and establishing a relationship so that at some point they're in a position to use us. Or if not, just establishing a reputation in the community so that hopefully you're viewed as somebody that's a legitimate player that when things do come up, even if it's not by the person that you established the relationship with, they feel comfortable saying that at least they've had some sort of good experience with you. That's the most fun I find about this job is just the interaction with the people and the challenge of trying to build a business. Strong, concise messaging to our listeners. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? Yeah, I think it's very important 
to think about the organization you're in as well, to think about how you move up, to be blunt about it, politically in the organization and who to establish relationships with, how to get credibility within the organization, and how to, at some point, make sure that you're viewed to be somebody within the organization that has a lot of respect. That plays a big role in getting business as well, which is the ability to deliver the firm and its expertise at the right time. I also think, and this is related, this is related to the first point, you shouldn't think about getting business myopically with respect to just what you do. You really need to meet a lot of the key people in your law firm. I don't mean just know who they are. I mean, know what they do and know what they do well and candidly know what you don't do well. Because if, if I had to just do the work that came in that was in my specialty, which is private equity, my business would be smaller. One thing I found is, is if I know that the firm is really good in real estate or the firm is really good in cyber litigation or whatever it may be, that when I see matters of that nature that come by me, I don't just turn them away because it's not the world I live in, but I'm able to speak the language well enough that I'm able to introduce them to the right people within the law firm and generate revenue that way, even though it may be an area that I have no confidence to represent them in, but I do have enough confidence to be able to sell the firm. And I think a lot of people fall down on this because they don't know enough about what their firm does well and conversely doesn't do well. So that if somebody comes to you and says, we need X kind of advice, not to badmouth your firm, but, but if it's not an area that your firm particularly excels at, to be honest and to suggest to them that they might look somewhere else. So again, it's all about becoming a trusted advisor, aspiring to become a trusted advisor. And part of that, I think, is really knowing what goes on around you within your organization. Fantastic. Good last point. It goes back to being a business person. You know where you have a differentiator and you know where you know it's not your strongest area of doing business. I appreciate that last point. Elon, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series, and embrace what it means to lead with the left foot. Thank you.